So I didn't make every possible mistake, but I made one, which is I forgot to remind uh, our song leaders that uh, today's message just have a little bit of cursing in it. You might want to tweet that out and get more people in the next five minutes. So if this may offend you, I'm going to take a drink of water during which time you can get up and leave. Okay. You're all in now. All right. Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch. The name was spoken with reverence in the household that I grew up in. Atticus Finch, one of the heroes of Harper Lee's 1950s novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus Finch, a lawyer, a white man here, played by the inimitable Gregory Peck, who in Depression-era America defends Tom Robinson, an African-American man falsely accused of a vicious crime. Atticus Finch, a hero of American literature who stood against the mob. Atticus Finch, who some of us might feel different about after this last week. See, Harper Lee has a new novel out. New in quotes. It's not new at all. It was actually written before To Kill a Mob. Bird, even in the timeline of To Kill a Mockingbird, it happens 20 years after that. And so this prequel that's kind of a sequel has been released. I think it was July 14th this past week. And in it, we find that Atticus Finch, hero of conscience and do-gooders everywhere, just as the civil rights movement is gaining steam in 1950s American South, Atticus Finch turns out to be, as he grows older, a defender of American apartheid. Atticus Finch, who once attended a KKK meeting, opposed the NAACP, and turns out to be a fan of segregation. For many of us who grew up with this image of Atticus Finch as hero, this is like a moment of... It's the only thing I can think of it, like, like, say it ain't so, Joe. For those of you who are baseball fans or might know the story of Shoeless Joe Jackson throws the uh, 1918 World Series with his fellow Chicago White Sox and the apocryphal story of the kid on the courthouse steps who goes up to him, ragamuffin kind of kid, say it ain't so, Joe, you know, like you've ruined my hero, my sense of who you are. Say it ain't so, Atticus. It's painful when our idols, even ones that aren't real, (laughs) let us down. And this is in the spirit of what today's Spirit Flicks movie is about, which is that it's actually even more painful and even more frustrating when the idol that lets us down is our own lives. Birdman is the Spirit Flicks movie for today. It kind of surprisingly swept or almost swept the Academy Awards, this past winter, and it begins with a kind of art imitating life with a nod back to art with Michael Keaton, who some of us first became really aware of when he was Batman, not the recent Dark Knight Batman, which I kind of really liked, but the kind of jokey Tim Burton Batman, late 80s, early 90s, but it was huge, and Michael Keaton made a lot of money as Batman. Well, in this He plays that character a long time ago in his life, Birdman. Michael Keaton hasn't quite fallen as far as the character in the movie Riggins has, but he's not like Batman was before. 
Now, this is a movie is what they call literary uh, and film magical realism. It means all kind of fantastical things happen just in the course of everyday life. And so the alter ego of Michael Keaton's character, Birdman, talks to him, shows up over his shoulder, goads him, whispers in his ear, yells at him, saying, you know what? We can go back to being Birdman again. You can be famous again. We would earn a billion dollars worldwide if we were Birdman again. His successful self-image of what he once was, letting him know he's not that anymore, but he could be again. Instead, the character Riggins, he wants a comeback of a different way. On stage, on Broadway, in front of a live audience, no film, no special effects, no superheroes. And we meet this character and the other characters in the movie in the days before the premiere. And it is not going well. Now, if you've seen this movie, you know that this Riggins character, pretty much like everyone else in the movie, is arrogant and egotistical and fulfills every other stereotype that there is of an actor of an artistic sort. But here's the other thing. All of them are terrified. Terrified of being irrelevant. Terrified of being forgotten. In one of the most poignant moments in the movie, when it's all spiraling out of control for Michael Keaton's character, he says to his former wife, and he has been just the worst husband in the world, and not a really good ex-husband either for that matter. He says, do you know that Farrah Fawcett died on the same day that Michael Jackson did? The implication being that no one remembers Farrah Fawcett anymore. They didn't even remember her death. And they're not going to remember his life either. He's just going to be forgotten or perhaps remember it as a flop. Everyone in this movie, all the actors, the characters they play, they're all, we would say, they're, they're, they're fronting. They're conveying to the world an image, a self-image they want to believe is successful. They are all, in the broadest sense of this term, idol worshipers. Idolatry and the costs of idolatry are woven all throughout this movie in small and sometimes subtle ways there's a small insignia a small kind of uh, epigram written into this, the bottom of Riggins's mirror in his dressing room in the Broadway theater it's never remarked upon but it says this a thing is a thing not what is said about that thing it's about idolatry A thing has a reality, a life has a reality, not just what is conveyed about it or said about it. Michael Keaton's character, a lot of the people in the film, they don't want to be idolaters of themselves, but they end up believing a lot of their own self-image. There's a lot of uh, prohibitions against idolatry in a lot of spiritual traditions, and very often they are interpreted in the most immature vile and violent ways possible. Like when the Taliban blows up thousands of years old Buddhist statues in Afghanistan because they represent, as they experience it, a false teaching. 
or as I remember a few years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention decided it would be a good idea to put out an open letter on the first day of Diwali, the Hindu festival of lights, taking opportunity to evangelize to Hindus that they would leave their false idols, their false gods and goddesses and find their way to the Southern Baptist tradition, understood it, the one true faith. Idolatry prohibition is so often experienced in immature ways. But that's not all of what the prohibition against idolatry is about. In a mature way, the level of insight. Why are all those prohibitions there? Why do they make sense? I think it's because, and I know it within my own life, and I've met it in just about every other life that I've met as well too. There is a very human tendency to want to cement a certain self-image of ourselves, whether around success or being competent, or for some people it's being incompetent all the time, and conveying only that image to the world. Pretend in that image, in that idolization of ourselves, that we are invulnerable. Idolatry is all about ego defense. And I assume we all have egos here. I don't think we would have gotten to this point in our lives if we didn't. But the problem with playing ego defense all the time is that we cannot connect on the basis of our souls. The basis of that which wants to grow and share itself and really show the true depth and meaning of our lives without the filter. Now, unfortunately... Spirituality is supposed to help in terms of letting go of this ego defense, right? Spirituality, quote-unquote, is one of the worst offenders of idolatry. I had an image of this, like, right in my line of sight about a month ago when I was standing on the checkout line at Whole Foods and I had my, you know, ocean-harvested seaweed kelp and... I had my chips that were organic everything, and I had my cruelty-free, humane-raised ground beef. I guess it's only as cruelty-free up to the point of, like, I'm killing the animal to eat it. (laughs) But I was standing there waiting in line, and I saw these magazines that I'd seen several times before. These are good magazines, by the way. I like both of these magazines. But there's this image over and over again on these magazines, these mindful magazines, these yoga magazines. It's all, mm, all bliss, all the time. Life is easy. Life is good. You can be like this too. I have to tell you as someone who teaches contemplative practice that this stuff is not helping. Because very often when people start a contemplative practice, what they have to do is they have to get in touch and we have to get in touch with all the shit we don't want to face about ourselves. And we don't look like this. (laughs) And so we start to say, I can't do this. This is the image. No, my friends, these are great magazines, but these images are idolatrous because they hide the reality. The reality is that contemplative practice, and the reason I've chosen contemplative practice for my path into the deeper life of the Spirit, is that the reason that they exist in the first place is to transform the fact that life sometimes sucks. And life can be difficult. And to be human is to suffer. 
the idolatry of people who have their shit together all the time doesn't help. Rather, I would offer to you something I preached about a couple months ago in that message series Lee and I did about the wisdom of spirituality and kids' books, in which I preached on that classic. You know it. Everybody poops. (laughs) This is real. And metaphorically real. See, any image that eclipses the truth of who we are is going to be an idol. Spirituality. There's even a phrase for this. It's called spiritual bypassing. Talk about it a lot in good places where I've been. Great retreat centers. They warn us there is no spiritual bypassing here. You want to come here to get to the top of the mountain where it's all blissful and the air is crisp and clear and you can leave your life behind. But you know what? You bring your life right here to this retreat center with you. There is no spiritual bypassing. Not if we're really going to grow. Because the truth is the crap of our lives is also the fertilizer of our lives, which is also the growth of our lives. Any spirituality that is ends up in idolatry. Here's the thing, though. I don't believe that any of us make idols of our lives because we're evil or because we're wrong or because we're bad. I think many of us, including myself, make idols of our self-image because we're just plain old scared. Because we're wondering if we'll belong. Because like Riggins, we don't want to be forgotten. We want to know that our lives matter. Our idols are so often about the good parts of our lives. But here's the tricky thing. We build an idol based upon our competency, our attractiveness, our success, our ability to inspire others, our ability to ah, be in control. We can start to believe our own hype. We can start to get high on our own stash. We might think that only it is our competencies, our success, our inspiration... That makes us lovable. And the trickier thing still is that the idol of ourselves wants to tell ourselves, much like Birdman tells Riggins, if the idol is threatened, you are threatened and you may not matter. There's a favorite line I had in this movie that I absolutely love that ties this all together beautifully. And it's a dialogue between Riggins and his ex-wife who's played by the uh, wonderful actor Amy Ryan who brings a tremendous amount of vulnerability into this role. And at one point when Riggins is being his egocentric, scared, acting out self and they're talking about his career and should he go back to Birdman, she says this, just because I did not like that ridiculous comedy you did with Goldie Hawn does not mean I did not love you. I love that. I'm going to repeat that. Just because I did not like that ridiculous comedy you did with Goldie Hawn did not mean I did not love you. But that's what he believes. Because she doesn't buy into the idol of who he is. If she doesn't buy into the idol, then he thinks all of himself is threatened. So I don't think any of us have started in a ridiculous comedy with Goldie Hawn. But we all have our version of that, don't we? Our flops, our failures... 
Here's what I was talking about before. It wasn't the S word, it's this word, our fuck-ups. We all have them. What's your version of the ridiculous comedy with Goldie Hawn? Beyond that idealized image, do you believe that you are lovable? This is what it means to overcome idol worship. Staying in touch with what's beyond the idealized self-image. Now, these messages are not film criticism. This is not a movie review. But here I do want to talk about something in this movie that kind of ties it all together. Where the method and the meaning are united. If you've seen this really cool movie, and I'm not sure I've ever seen anything exactly like it. It is all filmed as one long, continuous take. They have some kind of tricks of the camera, time-lapse things, but it's basically the first scene is shot by the same camera, not an iPhone, but you get the picture, that lasts through the final scene. One long, continuous take. The filmmakers are making a point. Real life is not edited. Real life is one long continuous take of everything. Riggins, as he's coming to some realization about his own flaws and screw-ups, he says to his daughter, who's just getting out of rehab, he said, I wish I hadn't videotaped her birth. I wish I had been there in the moment. See, he's living... A lot of his life, that redacted life. You know what a redacted document looks like, right? (laughs) It hides the truth. The things we don't want to see about ourselves, we don't want someone else to see. All real spiritual growth comes back to this one key point. All real spiritual practice coheres around this one true experience. To unredact our lives. To move past the self-imaging, and the idolatry of wanting to believe the ideal about ourselves. The truth behind the mask is always so much more compelling than the mask itself. Some of you, of course, remember Mother Teresa, right? Look at that image. So holy, so beloved. Oh my God, she does things none of us could imagine. Life with the poor, the destitute, the forgotten about. Well, some of you might remember that after Mother Teresa's death, although I think it would have been wonderful it was released during her life, they released her letters, her journal. And in it was revealed a person who struggled mightily. At times questioning The existence of the God upon whom her faith is not just defined, but to question is even considered a sin. In the times in which she is assured of God's existence, she is not assured of the divine's presence in her life. She feels lonely. She feels forsaken. She feels left alone. 
I got to tell you, when I read those letters, I had an appreciation for Mother Teresa and her life that I never did before. This is a real person of faith. This is not the scripted, filmed version, the ideal version. See, idols are stone. They're fixed. They're final. And instead, I think what so many of us need is an image of inspiration, of fragile, vulnerable flesh and bone and blood to inspire us. Fortunately, I've had quite a few teachers of this sort in my life who I've known, not just the image or learning about Mother Teresa, one of whom was a guy who I now call one of the wise elders in my life. He came into my life about 15 years ago when I was at a point of really being honestly quite lost. My first marriage, which, you know, I didn't miss the relationship. I just felt like a complete flaw and failure that, it, you know, training wheels came off because that's what it was. It was a training wheels marriage. And I was kind of adrift. And I met a guy and came to know him at a time in which he had made some real changes in his life. He was late 50s, early 60s, and he had been a tremendous success, as we would normally think about success in American culture. And he decided to leave that. At first, when I asked him about it, he said, well, you know, I made enough money. I'm ready to do new things. He started intentionally doing things in his life that he was not good at, some of which he turned out to be good at. He became a, you know, amateur chef, really good. He became a guitar player. He was awful. He started spending his life, his time with people who were more obviously vulnerable than him, spreading his life around like seed. He was one of my first teachers about getting beyond the idol of ourselves because some time later when I really got to know him, he said these words to me. I asked him, you know, how could you leave that success? Myself, who to this point in my life really didn't know what success was. How could you leave all that? I thought that was the point to get there. And he said these words. He said, because now for the first time in my life, I know what it's like for people to actually see me. Now for the first time in my life, I know what it's like for people to actually see me. His idol was gone, and his life began. Which brings me back to the very first words that we see in this movie, Birdman. I did not know that Raymond Carver's poem, Late Fragment, is a part of this movie. I probably would have seen it a long time ago or earlier if I had known. I would have seen it when it came out in the movies. This is my favorite poem in the world. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. By the way, read that poem, taking out those words, even so, and it totally changes the meaning. That poem only exists on the other side of idolatry, on the other side of an idealized self-image. That even so can only be written or understood by those of us who have flaws and failures who are in touch with the fact 
that we don't have our shit together. And that even so, we can know what it is to be beloved. On the other side of the image, there is belovedness beyond any image. On the other side is saying goodbye to our idealized self-images, our idolatries, and saying hello to our lives. Beyond any idol, there is this beautiful, complex, messy, mucky, muddy, amazing life. May we be willing if not ready, at least willing, to greet this life today. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of mess. God who in many names, in many words, in many traditions encourages us, don't believe the hype. Don't believe the idols who said in one tradition, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. God who encourages us, life is so much more than an image. Life is so much more than a narrative we spin. May we love our lives and their complexity and their beauty, in their messiness, in their insight. May we love this life in its fullness. And in loving so, even so, no belovedness deep in our bones. Amen.